Welcome back to the Moto X-Pod show. I am Darkside. Uh, once again, no motocross on this particular pod. This is a, another music version. We're going to get into part two of the Monty Pittman interview. Uh, we left off with him getting to Los Angeles. And uh, as his actual, I guess, career started to take off, we're going to get into some of that stuff of him working with Madonna, working with Prong, one of his all-time favorite bands, um, some other things that... I think are very interesting, so I hope you guys stay tuned, and hopefully you, if you're a fan of Monty's, you enjoyed the first one. Um, but yeah, we're going to get into this thing here shortly. Hang tight. I'm back with uh, part two of the Monty Pittman interview, and on the phone with me, obviously, is Monty Pittman. What's up, dude? Hey, what's up? Here we are again. Yeah, man, finally getting a chance to get back to this. Um, for those listening, it's only been a few... About? Do what? What were we talking about? Uh, I think we were talking about Star Wars and our favorite candy. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, for... For those that are uh, listening to the podcast, it's only been a few seconds, right, in between. But for us, it's been, <laughs> it's been a little bit with the holidays, and we our schedules didn't really match up. That's how short my attention span. <laughs> well, I want to let you know, man, uh, Monty, so introing into this interview, I uh, I use Skeleton Key as the one of the songs. Um, oh, okay. Which I just want to let you know that's probably maybe my favorite song you've ever done. If not, um, yeah, that's probably it. That's probably it. Burn down the gardens right there too. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I forgot about both of those. <laughs> but I'm glad that you brought them up. <laughs> yeah, it's a good good song. And then I uh, I did a little intro before I started interviewing you, and then I used uh, and I have a question about this. I used the little piano piece you you recorded on "My Remains Buried" with the "Truth That Never Sleeps" music at the very end of another sad story. Um, that music is just beautiful, and I, I really want to start this thing off because I meant to ask you this last time. Uh, okay. Why did you decide to record that with the piano, and had you ever really recorded anything playing piano before? I, you know, yeah, I'd never recorded myself playing piano before, and that was it. wasn't even a decision. I had just had I just happened to be sitting there at the piano, and it got recorded. I was just kind of play, I was just kind of playing around. Yeah. And then it got all of that just happened to get recorded, and that was you know there was a time when you it was a a cool thing to have a really long track. Yeah, like a lot of bands would have a you know on their on their CD the last song would be really long, and then there'd be some stupid thing at the very end that you'd have to wait 13 minutes for <laughs> for right another track. You know, yes, and yes. You think oh, that's so cool. But, um, the hidden track. It was kind of an extra thing. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a hidden track, but uh, it was just sort of an extra thing to just to kind of throw in there. We only had eight. Well, There's just eight songs on that album. Right, but so yeah, and like you said, something not... extra. We, we recorded, I think, twelve. We, we didn't. I don't. The best songs we actually didn't get to mix because we wanted to save those 
and get all of our mixes dialed in. Yeah. Which, well, I think we may have touched like a on a really good idea, but, but the result is that we didn't get to make like our favorite songs on it. Yeah, I think we may have touched in, uh, <laughs> on that in the last one where we talked about going yeah. home and another or uh, power power over me. I knew or two that didn't make it. Yeah, and there was a song what I want what I want to know, which was probably my favorite one because it was it was kind of different for us. Yes, yes. It was almost like a, a rock. Track. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, I think we may have touched on a lot of those songs last time. That and like Lifeless was one that I uh, I would have yep. liked to have heard recorded also. That was all kind of like the next era. We never recorded those. Right. And I think there was one other song that we did. I think it was Come On, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a demo of that. That's right. I have it. It sounds really, really bad, but I do have a demo of that. that I think you sent it to me years ago. Eddie Sheffling is the only person that has any of these. Right. Yeah, that's that's the go-to guys, Eddie. Um, all right, well, let's get into Monty Pittman. Uh, we're going to call this the Madonna years. Uh, where we okay. left off was you moving to L.A. Um, you were kind of getting settled in. Uh, I know that you started teaching at Guitar Center Hollywood relatively soon after getting there. Talk about that a little bit, how you got that job. Well, I, I, I went to L.A. to go just, um, well, First, I joined to LA just to, to visit, and then I loved it, and I wanted to move there. I just, it was more of like a, this overwhelming feeling that I had to move there. It wasn't necessarily a, a want, because mm-hmm. there's, you, you can hate LA and love LA in the same day, in the same hour. And I was like, okay, well, I got to work somewhere. And so I'll, I'll apply at the Guitar Center in Hollywood, because I figured I would meet the most musicians there. Or, or you know that's that's going to be my best bet for working as a musician. Yeah. Whatever it was going to be, and I got hired before I even uh, when I was ba- when I went back. So I went I went to LA a second time just to find an apartment. Mm-hmm. And that's when I applied at Guitar Center, and then I, but you know by the time I got back to Texas, I'd already got hired. They're like, hey, well, can you come in this weekend? I'm like, well, I haven't even moved there yet. <laughs> and then I was going to start working there as soon as you know, as soon as I moved. So that was that was good that I had a job. I'd be doing something. Yeah, yeah. But there, there was a lot of great things there. I, I, I've met a lot of great friends that I'm still friends with. You know, now twenty years later. But it was it was it was very competitive. It was a, it was a hard job. Okay. Because you work on commission, and you have a certain. I don't think it even works this way anymore. But at the time, like let's say you had to sell, uh, let's say it was a thousand dollars worth of, you know, guitars and amps, mm-hmm. and whatever. And if you only sold nine hundred and fifty dollars, if that was if that were the number, whatever the number was, then you wouldn't make your commission. Oh wow! But if you but if you made a thousand and ten dollars, then you would get the percentage of that commission. But if somebody had worked there. Or somebody else who had worked there, if they had talked to someone who had come in, they could get some of your sales. <laughs> so, you know, I would sell somebody an amp and a guitar, and then someone else that worked there that had been there for, I don't know, 30 years, it seemed like, would say, like, oh, I, I helped him six months ago. I talked to him. And oh. all they do is they just go and they would talk to somebody and get their number. Yeah. And, and then call them. And then talk, tell them about sales. And so they, so the, the, like the bosses would always be like, you need to get these people's number and call them. And I'm like, that's really creepy. I'm not going to do, 
ask these people for their number and call them and say, hey, we got these guitars. And yeah. So I, I was not good at the business of selling guitars. Okay. And people used to always come in looking for guitar teachers, and we didn't have any. Um, so there was a couple of phone numbers that you would give out. I don't know. I have no idea who it, it, it was. But then the, you know, people would come back in, like, hey, you have any other numbers? And I was thinking, like, after a while, I was thinking, like, you know, I could just be teaching, and then I could be my own boss. And that's where that sort of turned into me teaching there in L.A. But the first, um, it was like the first couple of weeks I worked there, there was this girl that worked in drums. Her name's Nikki. She plays drums for the Iron Maiden. Uh, not, no, not the Iron Maiden. No, she, maybe she does play that. No, no. I don't remember. It's either the Iron Maidens or Hammer of the Broads. Okay. It's an all-girls. So the Hammer of the Broads is a uh, all-girl Led Zeppelin tribute band. I don't think she plays for the Iron Maidens, but maybe she did. Right. I don't remember. Um, anyway, so she worked in drums. She comes in. She's like, "Oh, you're the new guy. I hear you're into metal. We got to get together and jam." And I'm like, well, "What do you play?" And she's like, "I play drums." And I, was, I thought that was quite something I'd never heard before. <laughs> and and then we we became friends. Yeah. And we would go to lunch together, and uh, she was saying something. She goes, "Oh yeah, my um, saying something about her boyfriend Ivan." She goes, "Yeah, my boyfriend Ivan and I play together." And it was Ivan Deprume who used to play drums for White Zombie. Yes. And another weird part of that is the night before, I remember listening to that first White Bombie. I'm going, whatever happened to that drummer? You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I was like, well, oh my God, I was just listening to that first album and like, what, you know, whatever happened to him? She goes, oh, he's Jen with Tommy Victor from Prom. I was like, what? Because <laughs> that was, you know, one of my favorite bands. Yeah. And yeah. So, I was going to ask you about that, but you're getting into it. So that's good. Yeah. Long, yeah, long story short about that is, um, so Ivan and, and, and Nikki introduced me to Tommy Victor, and then the, you know the, the story is I, I went over. So you know I didn't know what would happen with that situation, but then also Tommy was maybe going to sell some of his amps, mm. and I was like, dude, I'll buy all of those old Marshall amps of yours. And so he called me, and I was going to come up. I went over to his place, we're hanging out. We got we really hit it off, and I remember like playing his red Charvel. Surfcaster, which you see like in the Broken Peace video. Yeah. And it, it was like all out of whack. And I was like, dude, some work on it. And I was tuning it up. And then Tommy was like, yeah, well, we could do this and we could do this and we could do that. And I've, I've been asking him about like how to play some of the songs. You know, like, is this, am I playing this right? Am I doing this right? He's like, yeah, how do you know that? And then he kept saying, we, 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 we. And I was like, what do you mean, we? I was like, are you saying I'm in the band? And he's like, well, yeah, of course you're in the band. <laughs> and I'm like, it was that easy. Yeah. So that was it. And that's how I joined prong. I always, so, I kind of heard rumors of that, you know, cause Chris and I would work, we're working together at the time and he talked to you, Chris Sheehan, your, your old singer. And, uh, he, he would talk, he, he would tell me some of those stories, you know? And, and, uh, I just remember thinking this, like, uh, it's like that, like almost like a movie, right? I mean, it's just like this, you go get to hang out with one of your favorite bands and all of a sudden you're in the band, you're, you're sitting there basically jamming with, you know, somebody that was kind of one of your idols and how surreal that must be. Yeah, that was really, really cool. So then I would, 
so you know, I lived down in Redondo Beach because I liked it there. I didn't realize the traffic. <laughs> because and I and I realized later on that the reason I didn't um, put that into the equation was that when I was there, when I would go home, it'd be two in the morning when when bars would close. Oh yeah, there was no traffic. Yeah. So. So, but when I lived there, I would, you know, have to be at work at nine in the morning in Hollywood. So I'd be in eight o'clock traffic. Then after work, when I get off, then I'd go to the valley up by the, if you know LA, I'm going from Redondo Beach to the Burbank Airport. So, because Palm used to rehearse near the Burbank Airport, and then we would rehearse until four in the morning or whatever, and then I'd drive home back to Redondo Beach and then wake up and do it all over again. So I was sleep deprived. I wasn't sleeping at all, and the last thing I wanted to do was play my guitar. I was just so burnt out, and something had to, to give. Yeah. And um, so I, I, I was going to quit Guitar Center and start teaching. And so I did that, and when I did, uh, Guy Ritchie was one of my first students. And so I... I he was dating Madonna at the time. Yes. So then I would be going over to Madonna's house. She and I became friends because I was teaching her boyfriend at the time. And then I started teaching her, and then I started playing guitar for her. Yeah, I want to back up just a sec. Back up. I just... know that's the, that's the quick. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Um, the, the, who else were you teaching? Because I remember, I thought I heard some rumors, and I thought maybe maybe it came from Chris, or maybe it came from our our Longview News Journal newspaper who got shit wrong constantly. I can't... Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> go by that. Yeah. So yeah. who were there any other famous people that you gave lessons to? Well, it all started. Now here's another weird, you know, part of the puzzle is it all started with Johnny Resnick from the Goo Goo Dolls. Okay. So he would come into Guitar Center, uh, him, him and Robbie, their bass player, would, would come in, and um, like Robbie would just come in and, and hang out. You know, and that, that was very common. There was always, like, you know, there was celebrities or, you know, so-called, you know, people that you know, I wouldn't say celebrities, but someone that you know or people in bands that you know of mm-hmm. always coming in there. The, the craziest story is, my craziest story there is I helped David Carradine with some strings. Oh, nice. And he was, he was, and he was barefoot. <laughs> like, he didn't have shoes on. That makes sense. So, who knows what, you know, happened before or after. Right. Why he came in with no shoes on and needed strings. But, <laughs> Jonathan Davis from Corn bought, like, all of this, like, uh, you know, electronic drum kit and you know a bunch of stuff for a studio. Um, one of the so there was this really nice Paul Reed Smith because we had Paul Reed Smith guitars, and there was this really cool purple guitar that we had all kind of gone around playing. And then one of the guys brought it, and then West Borland was checking out, and he was like, "Oh, hey, can I check that?" So I, I showed him that guitar, and he wound up buying it, and that's how he wound up going to Paul Reed Smith, start playing their guitars. Oh, okay. So there's always something like that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That, um, I mean, it had to be really pretty damn cool. But, yeah, but it was a cool thing, but you also get really used to it really fast. Sure. And it becomes, like, no big deal. And um, so Johnny Resnick came in, and he was like, hey, do you, uh, do you have any guitar teachers that you recommend? I said, no, we, we don't, actually. People always ask about that, but there's no teachers. 
Oh, uh, but you, what do you what do you need? You know, why would you need a guitar teacher? You already have hit songs on the radio. And he's like, well, I want to just learn stuff about open tunings and different kind of tunings on a guitar. Okay. I was like, oh, I, I could show you that. And he said, um, okay, well, here's my manager's number. I'll, I'll take lessons from you. So, you know, just call him and set it up. I'm like, okay. So I call his manager. His manager acts like I'm some crazy fan. Right. Like, stalking him. He's like, how did you get this number? Why are you calling? I was like, well, he, Johnny gave you the number. So I was like, okay, whatever. And then he comes in again. Johnny comes in, you know, probably a couple of weeks later or something. He's like, hey, I never heard from you. And I was like, <laughs> I called your manager, and he acted like I was some stalker. He's like, oh, okay, well, I'll, t- I'll talk to him. Just call him again. And then the same exact thing happened again. So <laughs> I just gave up. I was just, I mean, I didn't, I didn't care. I was just like, okay, whatever. Yeah. And then uh, Pierce Brosnan came in with his son, Sean. And his son had been in a car accident, and uh, he was kind of like recovering from that. And he wanted to get an amp and a guitar, and he, and, and, you know, start start you know while he was recovering or whatever, taking it easy to to get a guitar and start practicing. And he was like, "Do you know of any guitar teachers?" And I was like, "Yes, I do. Uh, I teach." <laughs> yeah, yeah. The gears <laughs> said, are the gears are clicking now. A number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I was like, wait a second. Um, because that's what I did back in, in Texas, towards the end. Yeah. So then I went to go teach him, but where they lived was out in Malibu. I could barely find the place. And, uh, but but that that's really what started me teaching in L.A., was kind of a combination of those two people. And then actually my second student was this girl, Catherine Morris. And... She was, um, she, she didn't play guitar in the movie, but she may have, she, there was a situation where she may have played guitar. She was in AI, remember that movie? Yes, yes. So she's in that, she's, there's a scene, and, and you know, here's another weird piece of the puzzle, Ministry, or the band that's playing. And so she kind of like announces everything. It's like a small part, but right. she had, you know, been in there. She'd been, she'd been starting to work a lot as an actress. And then later she got the show Cold Case. And I noticed in the Motley Crue movie, The Dirt, she's Nikki Six's mom. I was like, uh, God, she looks so familiar. Who is that woman? And I'm like, oh, my God, she used to come over to my apartment all the time and take lessons from me. <laughs> all right. Yeah, cool. And so then my third my third student was Guy Ritchie. Okay, now Guy, um, you know, like obviously he's a director and dating Madonna at the time, and as I recall, he, he bought a guitar from Madonna for her birthday. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So, and then you go, okay, so the first time you meet Madonna, I mean, come on, Madonna, obviously now is, you're very, very close to her, but she is one of the all-time icons in music, um, probably top five or at least, you know, in the top ten all-time to me. Um, and I remember when I got to meet her, through you on the drown tour, like that was probably the only celebrity I ever met where I was nervous walking in. What, what was it like for you meeting her? Well, when I met her, I drove up, I drove to her house and I pull in and she was sitting there with her daughter and she was sitting and she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just like, Whoa, okay. So I get out and I'm like, Hey, I'm here to see guy. And then guy's assistant runs up and he's like, Oh, Hey, Hey, come over here. So then I met Guy, and I started teaching him. And so 
you know, she didn't really say much. She was she was really cool. Yeah. You know? But um, as I was teaching guys, and you know, she was, I guess, looking back now, kind of interested in that. And she would just come in and say hi and sit and hang out with us, or just. I remember one day we were playing and she walked by. Um, and I, I remember her walking by like the, the, the we, were, we would we would sit outside in sort of a kind of a patio kind of area, and so these doors were open and I remember her walking. I think it was either it was before she had Rocco. Yeah. She was just about it was within weeks of him being born. She would walk by and just kind of like. I remember her just looking up and she was just standing there at the door just kind of watching us. And I stopped and I said, oh, I, I think she wants to talk to you. You know, I thought maybe she was waiting, mm-hmm. like to ask Guy or something. And then I stopped she goes, no, 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 just, just keep playing, don't stop. I was like, oh, okay. And she would just been sitting there like listening to us play. <laughs> and that, I can only imagine like how... Uh... That that's probably a little awkward, right? I mean, like it's freaking Madonna listening to me play. No, not not at all. Really? It just, it ne- she she has never been. That, I've never been that way with her. Okay. Um, so which is probably part of the longevity of our relationship. Yeah, yeah. I've never. Yeah, that's something I definitely have in my notes. How long you've been with her, and I want to get to that in a minute. Um, but what I remember again, these are just like my memories of talking to you during this time, and. Um, she was going to do Letterman and she was going to play, I forget the name of the song, but it's the, I think it's about guy, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what was the song she played on Letterman? Oh no. Uh, on, on, um, on Letterman, we did don't tell me. Okay. And yes. Song, I'm sorry. This, that just came out. And for that whole album. So I had, I had left Redondo beach and I'd moved up to Hollywood and I found a, a roommate just on, um, West side rentals is what it's called. It was, you, know, you can find someone who has an apartment, and they're you're gonna they want to split yeah, uh, yeah. room with you. So my roommate's name was Lance, and so um, one night, you know, I've been I was just in my room, kind of like playing or whatever, and, and Lance comes in and he goes, "Oh, hey," he goes, "Are you still teaching? Uh, are you still going over to Madonna's house?" And I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "Oh, I saw that uh, she had a new album come out today." I was like, "Oh, really?" And all of a sudden, something clicked, and I just I put everything down. I grabbed my keys. I ran out the door. And I went to the Virgin Mega Store just as they were closing. Oh wow! And I bought the the music CD. And so then I came home and I put that CD on and I wrote out every song and I learned every song on the album. And I had a lesson with Guy the next morning. And um, and then she she had written a song for him. And the chords are A minor, G, and D, which are perfect for someone who's just learning how to play guitar. Okay, okay. So the next morning, I, I come with these sheets of paper for Guy, and I'm like, hey, look. Um, you know, she came up with a new album yesterday. I said, here's the whole album. And I said, here's, um, <laughs> you know, she wrote this song for you. Look, it's just A minor, G, and D. So you should play this song for her and show her that you learned the song that she wrote for you. Yeah. And he's just he stops and he just looks at me and he goes, "How did you get this? Like like I, it's like I had stolen some music, right? Well, how, how did you get this?" I said, I, "The album came out yesterday. I figured it out." He's like, "You figured out the whole album, and it only came out yesterday." I go, "Well, yeah." 
That's that's musical then, genius, Monty. I don't know if you realize that, then, but that's like that's not normal. And and then he kind of looked at me like, huh. And then he got up and he walked out of the room. And so I think he went to Madonna and was like, all right, you know this guy teaching me? Yeah. He learned your whole album and wrote it out. <laughs> and so then he was like, then he, he got her guitar mm-hmm. for her birthday, because this was August within a few weeks. And so then I started teaching her. Yeah. The first time that I, the, the first lesson I gave her was she had had, she had a dinner at her house. I don't, I, I don't know who was over there, but I think it was like Sting and people like that. And so she was, um, I remember like knowing that there was some, you know, you could tell from like people's cars and their security and their drivers that there was some, there were some people that were there. Yeah. And there, you could also tell it was kind of like, oh, she's going to go take her guitar lesson. Let's see how this goes. And she was very like, I didn't think that, I thought, I, I didn't, I didn't think she was very into it. And, um, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, you start showing someone something and then they're like, okay, well then what do I do with this? But, but she, she did, she did great for her, for her, you know, her, her first lesson. And then she just kept calling me back. Then her assistant was like, can you come over Monday, Wednesday and Friday you know, for like two hours each day? Yeah. I was like, are you serious? Like, yeah. And so then I, that's, that's what I was doing. I was, uh, I was just teaching her all the time. But then, so for Letterman, this is about a month after her first lesson, she said, um, we're both just tuning our, our guitars. And she said, hey, you want to come play on Letterman with me Thursday? And it was all, it was like, a, it was like, it was like, it was a, it was a joke. Right. Like it, like it was sarcastic. Um, and, then that was it. I was like, yeah, oh yeah, sure. And then we had our lesson and then afterwards, she's like, probably oh, my manager is going to call and set up your, your travel arrangements and all that. Do you have a place to stay? And my girlfriend at the time lived, had a place in New York. So I was like, yeah, I got a place to stay. So, um, I, so then went there and, and did Letterman. Yeah. That, and geez. And then I've been with her ever since. That was so exciting for uh, uh, all your uh, your Longview friends and family. I, I mean, I think there was like watching parties basically at like Legends, a local bar, and uh, I still have the VHS tape with it um, somewhere where I recorded it. And uh, for those that don't know what VHS is, fuck you. Uh, but yeah, that was that was so badass, and it seemed like like I remember watching it over and over, and in the little solo, like I felt like. Monty wants to keep playing, and I felt like Madonna kind of shut it down wow. almost. She gives you this little nod. I don't know. That's like maybe wow. that's my mind, but yeah, she wanted me to do something, and I had something worked out like this crazy solo. Uh-huh. And I'm sitting here in the dressing room. And what's funny is they they come into the dressing room. And they're like, "Do you want to um, do you want some makeup?" I'm like, "What? No, I'm <laughs> right. going to makeup." And they're like, "Oh, you really should, you know, with all the lights." I'm like, "No way," and I learned that lesson. Like, don't ever. You know, Any time on TV, you you wear makeup. It's not like makeup, makeup, but yeah, there's like stage makeup. So, that, so you don't have shiny spots. Lights are so bright it almost like feeds through your skin. Because yeah. When I watch back, I look like a ghost. Yep. Like yep. Letterman had like makeup like caked on his face. Right. But you don't notice it on TV. Yeah. You know, it's just the way that it all. Works. So, um, 
Well, so, that so for Letterman, then at the last minute, I was like, wait a second, I think I should play the, I think I should start the melody with the, I should start the solo with the melody of the song, and then kind of build the solo from there, and then let's kind of just see where it goes from there. Yeah. And so, and there were so many things going through my, my head, and then I go backstage, and then um, Biff, who's the stage manager on Letterman, um, I'm, I'm waiting next to him, and then I'm thinking, like, wait, I should tune these guitars again. Like the nervousness. Right, yeah, sets sure. In. So I go back in the very far part of the stage, and I'm tuning, and Biff's like, man, shh, be quiet, you know. So then I go out, he's like, okay, you're on. And I don't know what happened. I don't know what to, I don't know what's going to happen. Nobody had gone through that with me. So I go out, and there's just all these bright lights, and there's two stools, and I go, and I sit there, and when I'm sitting there, Madonna and Letterman, are, they're still talking. I can't hear them. I don't know what they're talking about. You can't hear any of that stuff. And I'm like, did I come out at the wrong time to see where they told me to come out? Yeah, yeah. And I'm just thinking, like, what are they talking about? And there's this guy that just walks out randomly on, on stage. And, um, and so then they're talking to me. Or they're, they're saying something. She's telling Letterman, this is my guitar teacher, Monty. But I can't hear what they're saying. I don't know if they're looking at me. So I just I just wave. Yeah. <laughs> so when you see that, I'm just like, I don't know what they're saying. And right. Wave. And then she comes around. And then we first, then we start playing. And it just, it doesn't seem like you're on TV. And it was so cold there. It's so cold. I mean, you, you, that's a notorious thing about that that show you always hear about people saying how cold it is there because you have all the lights and all that to keep it all. Yeah. It makes so sense. It's not hot from all the, all the lights would make it really hot. And so we played when we first started playing, I was thinking like, let's start again because are we in tune? Let me check the tuning one more time. And thank God it didn't, but I almost like wanted to like stop and go let's tune one more time. <laughs> so we played and then I did that solo like at the last minute. And just, and then, yeah, I could have kept going, but then I felt like that, that was enough. Yeah. You know, it was going to kind of go kind of crazy, but I just, that was too much for the song. You know, it doesn't need that. A lot of her music doesn't need that. People are like, oh, you should do more solos and all that, but it's just, it wouldn't make, it's kind of, it gets really cheesy and corny when people try to force stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, it was good though. I mean, I, and like I said, we, we were certainly proud of you and that led into, uh, 20 years right i mean are we at 19 and a half something like that yeah and then so so leaving that night i was leaving and paul schaefer comes and he goes oh man that was great because i really like on the solo how you started with the melody and then you went and for the g you played a ma major seven arpeggio that was so cool man and i'm like wow that's so cool that he caught all that yeah he, well, he paid attention to all those things just from me and i think that's part again i don't know that Again, I'm not a musician. I said that in the first show, uh, in the first part of the interview. But the things that you talk about with the way you play and the way you teach, and you know, um, I don't know that all musicians are quite as technically um, savvy, you know, as you are. Um, hell, I remember listening to you and uh, was it Frank? I think it was Frank Bello from Anthrax um, in Atlanta, and you guys were talking all this music stuff, and he like. I don't know that he followed everything you said because you were like, you're just, your brain works completely different. 
Sometimes people don't, but you, you just you never know that. Right. Well, it's just interesting the way the way uh, you play, and it's unfortunate to me anyway that you're. Uh, you know, you're an underrated guitar player because not everybody knows who you are, and there's all these guitar gods that we've talked about in some of your some of your uh, idols and stuff, and you have that ability, you know, and just, you know, it's unfortunate. I wish more people knew how good you were. Well, thanks. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about Madonna. So the first tour is Drowned. Um, I don't remember Drowned how... Drowned tour was, was uh, yeah, that was in 2001. Right, so that's a, a basically a year after you met her, r- right around nine months. Uh, it was not even a year actually when the when it when it started. Well, rehearsal started like in like the end of February. Tour started the beginning of June. The tour ended with September 11th. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna talk to because that was about. Probably a month after we flew to Detroit to see you, maybe a month and a half. Chris and I were talking about this the other day, and he's like, "No, it was after nine 11 I was like, "No, it wasn't," because no, yeah, no, it was before because yep. the, the, we were going to play that night, and, and then that show got canceled. I think the next show got canceled, and I think we played one more show, maybe two more shows. Yeah, after that, we'll talk about that tour just a little. Bit. We'll talk about the the beginning uh, with the rehearsals. And what, how different that was from probably anything you'd ever done. Um, again, I remember, I have a, a story about your rehearsals. You probably won't remember, but just talk about it a little bit. Probably. I probably don't remember. So I'm, I'm glad that I had my friends <laughs> remember these things. Yeah, well, tell me. One just, day I'm going to write a book. Well, talk and about then. the rehearsals and getting into that. I mean, your first, literally your first world tour with one of the biggest artists in the history of music. Yeah, well, rehearsals were a lot of fun. They were, um, they were at Sony Studios where they film, you know, a, a lot of a lot of movies. They were filming Spider Man next door, and we, we, we at first it was a different group of people there for rehearsals. Oh, okay. And uh, or it was a different band, and then one day, um, you know, I don't know what kind of details I can get into this, although it's been almost twenty years, but, um. You know, told not to come in, but huh. everything was okay. It was like, hey, uh, you're not going to go into rehearsal today, but everything, don't worry, everything is fine with you. And she had had let everybody go, and it was just me and and Stuart Price, who was the keyboard player. Yeah, and was he the music music so, director on that uh, that tour? Yeah, so then he wound up becoming the musical director then, and then they got uh, Marcus Brown on keyboards. And I'm not saying this is this is this is the reasoning of of, of Steve Sedelnik, but uh, I I do know that I said, hey, what about the drummer that you had on the promo tour? He seems like he's great for you. So she got Steve on drums, and then that was that that was that lineup: me, Stewart, Steve, and Marcus. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, so many laughs and great times. And yeah, I mean, it was my first time really going on tour, especially a tour of that magnitude. She hasn't toured in seven years. Uh, some some highlights were that uh, this guy, Jerry Stickles, was our, uh, he was a production manager, and he helped Jimi Hendrix put together the experience. Oh, cool. The, so, you know, like cool stories like that that I would always ask him about. Well, what about this? What about that? 
the guitar tech, um, one of the guitar techs, Hawkeye, he was Journey's guy the whole time. A lot of Journey's people were there. Um, you know, people that had been with them when, like, the guitar tech, Hawkeye was, he would tell the stories and he said he remembered being in the room with Jonathan Kane when he came up with the, uh, the, the piano part when he started writing faithfully. Wow. You know, you're sitting there playing and you started coming up with that. And those, those kind of stories. And, um, Jerry Stickles would say about, you know, talk about, you know, when Hendrix was alive, he could, they, they would say it as they were, he's British. And they say like, you know, you could go down to the pub and just have a pint and nobody would really bother him. He was, he was Jimi Hendrix. He was amazing, but he wasn't Jimi Hendrix until after he died. Oh yeah. Kind of like where we grew up. You know, Steve Ray Vaughan was a was a well known guitar player, but so was um I mean people I can't even really remember their names now. Um God, I, I there's somebody I'm thinking of that I can't even think of his name. Um, but there was other guitar players. There was only they, they were all well known, but it's like kinda of like one of those things like, you know, after somebody dies then it becomes they become Legends. way bigger. Yeah. It's immortalized. It's yeah. Legends. So, um, so that was a lot of fun. And uh, another cool, there were two cool stories of like the celebrity sort of side is we would go out. So we, every day for food, we would just order, uh, like takeout or delivery. So like, let's say we had ordered Thai food or whatever. So you just order whatever you want and you go outside and there's tables and you sit around and the guy from South Park with the Afro, I think that's, um, is that Matt Matt Stone or Trey Parker? One of the I yeah, I think it's Matt, but I'm not 100. percent And he, you would see him in the corner of where we were rehearsed in our 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 building, our room, always talking to himself <laughs> on a on a little like dictaphone. Yeah, on this always talking to himself, kind of walking in circles and pacing. And it would be like today, like if somebody was just on the phone talking to someone. And we're like, wow, that guy's always talking to himself. Like that's pretty crazy. And then we realize he's put he's he's thinking of the entire show and just saying it. He's sort of like reciting the whole show and all these ideas for them to write South Park. Crazy. And wow. and then there's also another the, the guy who's Shooter McGavin and Happy <laughs> Gilmore yeah, yeah. was playing basketball. And he ran, he was running somewhere, and he, the way he just stopped and was looking where he was going, he, he was Shooter McGavin. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. He wasn't that actor, like, going somewhere. He was, like, that actor. In character. That guy. Yeah. That's cool. So like, those, that was a couple of cool things just for rehearsals, and then then we moved to the forum to rehearse. Oh, so yeah, we I remember. forum for a month and a half. So that was cool because that's where Kiss did a live too, and there's so many, uh, so much history there. Yeah, I the story I remember from rehearsals that, well, it's not a story; it's just something that happened to me. You okay? So you, I got a call from you one day, um, and I answered it, and there was nothing but noise, and I like, hey, hello, hello, and I just kept hearing noise, so I hung up, and I was working, I was driving at the time, um, and a little bit later I get a call back from you again, and like, there's no. I, th- I think you maybe said just listen or so I can't remember, but you like, I got to hear some of your rehearsal while you were playing 
and I don't know if this, I don't know why you chose to call me, but I remember it very vividly. And I remember you making a mistake and I heard, you could hear Madonna in the back saying something like you fucked up Monty or something like that. Oh, that we, I don't know what you're talking about, Jamie. I would have never <laughs> called someone. On oh, rehearsal. okay. Well then we'll, we'll pretend it's, that was my imagination. Um, it must be your, a dream that you had. It could be, could be. <laughs> Well, either way, and then the other story, so myself, Chris, your old singer, Kevin Blaylock, your drummer. Yeah, that must have been a dream, if, if, if I would because I would never call you from rehearsal, and I would have never made a mistake. Okay. Well, then I'm going to... I'm gonna... Actually, actually, everything that I played was probably wrong. Term, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, maybe it was just my imagination. It was something I well, wanted I to happen. Okay. Fair enough. Well... Anyway, so Chris uh, Sheehan, your old singer, Kevin Blaylock, your old drummer, and his girlfriend Jessica at the time, we all came up to Detroit um, to the Drowned HBO show that, you know, like I said, Detroit in, I guess that would have been August, I think, of 2001, and uh, really got to be treated to some really cool stuff. Like I said, I got to meet Madonna literally minutes before she went live on HBO, Um but what the coolest thing I remember? Which is crazy. That would never happen again. Well, and like you t- you, just... you told us that night that like she we probably wouldn't get a chance to meet her. She didn't really take. She's busy. She doesn't take the. She didn't really take the time necessarily or have the time to meet people like that. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. She's got so much she has to do: vocal warm ups, you know, stretching, hair and makeup. Right. Um. You know, all the things you have to My parents have never even met her. That's what you told us. That like your parents had seen her at one of the shows before and didn't get a chance to meet her. And then also we were there all day during sound check and during while the dances were warming up. And you're like, hey, when Madonna gets here, you're going to have to leave the building. You know, you, she's not going to let anybody hear sound check. So I remember them right. going over the radio. M is in the building or something, you know, clear the room. So you told us we had to go. And before we got backstage, you're like, hey, come back. And you're I. Right. I guess she had said we could watch part of Soundcheck, and it was like literally yeah. the four of us in the this huge arena where the the Red Wings play, and you and Madonna playing. And I remember me and Kevin and Chris going, "This is fucking weird," because like Madonna's looking at us while she's playing, and I don't know how to react. Do we look at her? Do we say, <laughs> "Yeah"? It was super awesome. That's all I can say. That was like one of the coolest things ever. I think she thought it was cool to see my old band. Yeah. There. And I just got kinda, lucky. Kind of learn a little bit about me. Yeah, and I was just lucky that I, I was, was hanging out with your old band cuz I certainly wasn't part of the mm-hmm. band. But that was definitely one of the coolest experiences I've ever had and uh, I I guess I should tell you thank you for that. But yeah, oh, I got to welcome. see I got to see Madonna do sound check. I mean, that's rad. And she you know, she wasn't like she wasn't in her stage gear. She was, as I recall, she was in sweatpants or something. Yeah, just regular, you know, yeah. like well, what, what, what she would wear, almost for like dance rehearsal. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was really, really cool. Um, do you have any like? What do you remember that tour being like? As far as, uh, you know, just exhausting and touring. I mean, how did you adjust to that? Was it pretty easy? That tour was like a big party. Yeah. That that tour was kind of like, in a way, I always consider that of like it, 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 the closest to being like a Motley Crue tour. Really? Kind of, yeah. I mean, at, not not after seeing the dirt. <laughs> I used to say that. But at the time, it felt that way. 
<laughs> I was way off the mark. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that was uh, but just that sort of party, having fun, kind of. Yeah. Um, Seeing the world, yeah, enjoying kind of, life. Kind of tour, like 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 it may never happen again. You know, it's never you know you've never done this before. That's what that tour was, and it was almost like a rock and roll kind of tour. The way that tour worked. Okay. And then the, the next tour was the reinvention tour, and it was a little it was a little more elaborate, and you kind of knew what to expect. After that, the Confessions tour was there was a there was a, a huge album for us. So that was that sort of you know to to a lot of the other people it was kind of like okay now that I've done this where do we go from here oh yeah but I've, I've never thought about leaving I've never thought like okay I've done this and now I'm going to go do something else you know kind of in this for life or as long as she has me but well let's let's then, talk about that it, let's talk about that you've been there 20 years has she she's never had another musician that she's worked with that long has she no so uh, the backup singer, uh, Nikki, Nikki was with her for a long time. Is Nikki still with her? No. Okay. Well, so you're, what, why do you think she's kept you on so long? I mean, obviously she has a good relationship with you. Uh, there was times I remember she would fly you in for lessons. Um, she clearly as a person trusts you, loves you, respects you. Um, you know, what, what do you think she sees in you that has brought that on? Oh, I have no idea. You've never asked her? No, I've never asked her. I, I don't want her to think about it. She may go, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Fair. I should get Alex Skolnick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Uh, okay. Uh, good. That's that's pretty smart. I, I like that you don't you don't think about it too much, I guess. That's good. But, I, I mean, it's it's interesting, though, you know, that nobody else has been with her that long, you know? I mean, she, she probably... When you're at that level, there has to be trust issues. You have to have somebody that you can rely on. Um, you know, on the the last tour where I came, where Amber and I came to see you in Atlanta, we came to hang out with you for a little bit in your hotel room, and it was after the Anthrax show, I think. Um, and it was late, and like uh, she calls you down and and wanted you. I think it was right after Glenn Glenn Fry had just passed away, like the night or two nights before. And she called you. I don't remember if that was what it was about, but she called you in the, like to change something about the set or something. And I mean, she clearly trusts you, right? I mean, she 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 knows you know what you're doing. I guess so. I must have her fooled. <laughs> yeah, I know what I'm doing. Your 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 ego has uh, not grown with your with your your job. You, you're still as humble as ever. Well, all right. Let's. Well, let, well, I'm going to ask you one more Madonna question because I'm sure most of the people that are going to listen to this want to know things like this. But what's your favorite thing about working with Madonna? Or what's the best thing about working with her? Hmm. Um, you know, we were talking about this last night. We played the first show in Lisbon, and you know, thinking about as hard as rehearsals were, like rehearsing sixteen. I think she said 18 hours. Uh, who, who knows? It's like basically all day rehearsing and not getting out until four in the morning, six in the morning. As much as that, you will just, you know, you leave, you don't just leave a, a piece of yourself on the stage. You leave a piece of yourself 
connected to a tour. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're never the same after doing a tour of this size. And you don't even realize what you're what you're doing. I mean, there, there's people that we, this kind of stuff is changing their entire lives. Sure. Like for for the better, like in, in ways that you you will never know. Um, and you think like, okay, you're just going to a concert and having a good time, but you know she stands for things and stands up for people to in a way where you know there's there's just things that you may not ever notice. It completely changes people people's lives. Yeah, and uh, you know thinking about like how. At the time, like all the all the time that we spent in rehearsal for this tour, we were kind of. Um, you know, now you see it all pay off. You, you see what all that hard work achieves, and so and, and no, nobody works as hard as ours. There's no one else on the planet. That's something I can say with complete honesty. There's no other guitar player who plays with another band that works as hard as we work. It's not possible. Yeah, she's a perfectionist. So having that, you know, under your belt, so to speak, is it's like a medal of honor that you wear. That that is a that's a great thing. Uh, on this tour, like we're in you know, we were in LA for two weeks playing shows. Now we're in Lisbon for two weeks. We're gonna everywhere we go since it's a theater tour, we're, we're there a lot longer. We're there for, you know, usually a week or two weeks at a time. So that, that's that's cool to be able to spend all that time in the city. Yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine that's the case instead of, you know, being on a bus or a plane and you kind of settle in a little bit and get a feel for the city and enjoy some of it. So that that's... that's that's, that's something that, you know, the, the things that you look back on... Mm-hmm. Which sometimes you think don't matter, and then sometimes something gets brought up to you, and you think it really does matter, and it seems to matter more and more over time. Oh yeah, that's that's a, yeah, that's special. I guess I can see that. That's cool. Um, it is. You know what? What sucks is being away from friends, family, my mm-hmm. kids. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I miss my daughter's father and and uh, and daughter dance at school, but. That sucks, but also, is she going to remember that, or is she going to remember, you know, what she got from me being able to do this tour, you know? Right, right. Meaning, whether it be like, you know, um, the other benefits that come with it, not saying that, no, I'm not saying like, saying, oh, my dad was on tour with Madonna, but... Yeah, just... Yeah, I mean that. This is your job, man. I mean, you're you're doing your job and you're earning a living. And um, yeah, you know, as a musician, that's a choice you made. And I'm sure your kids understand that. And you know, when you're home, it's all the more special. Mm. Um. Okay. So enough about Madonna. Uh, well, I want to say one thing that for people listening and wondering about Madonna and she, you know, she's a, a you know, one of the divas of music. But I always thought it was really cool that at the Detroit show we went to. You had her. You talked her into, I guess, or gave her the suggestion to come out and say, "What's up, Detroit Rock City?" In tribute, oh, to, yeah. in tribute to Kiss, and then yeah, on one of the tours, uh, I think it was a, two tours ago, maybe. She, you guys, she was doing a, a Pantera riff uh, in between songs, I guess, or at the end of one of the songs, as I recall. And that, you know, she she's pretty open minded. It seems like to put a little bit of Monty Pittman's flavor into some things. 
<laughs> well, that yeah, the, the Pantera thing came from uh, something from guitar lessons. Okay. Yeah, and that came from. Um, it was we. I really wanted to work on her right hand mm-hmm. playing. And so I was telling her a story about when Dimebag came to a prong show and he was asking her, is it the Galaxy Club? And he was like, hey, you know, so Tommy and, and Dime were talking and then um, and Tommy was like, oh, here, hey, he goes, do you know, you know, Monty, you know, he's from here. And um, so he was like, yeah, he, this is my new guy. And, and then Dime was like, okay, cool. And then, Tommy went to go do something else, and it was just me and Dime talking. And he's like, "Oh, you guys do cut rate?" And uh, and I'm like, "Hell yeah, we you know we do that one." He's like, "You can do all you know. You can hang with Tommy." He's like, "You can do." He's like, "Tommy's got the best right hand in the business." That's James <laughs> He goes, "Master him." There's Dino, and then he he was he also says some of you know because he loves that wild so much. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Zach's not known for as a right hand rhythm player. Not that he couldn't do it, you know, but you know what I mean. Like that sort of percussive right hand. Yeah. He's like, he's like, you, you do cut rate. You know, when it goes to that F sharp on the second fret, that where it's playing, you you can go all the way. I was like, yeah. He's like, well, I'm going to be watching you because if you don't get it right, I'm going to come take that guitar off of you. I'm going to show you how it's done. Oh, that's awesome. And at the time, at the time. Now you hear, I mean, now you talk about that, and you're like, what a what a crazy story. Yeah, yeah. What a crazy thing to be, to have a conversation about with this person. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, I got it. You know, I'll, you know you'll see. <laughs> I made sure to drink, like, two Red Bulls that night. <laughs> he, and he didn't mean it. He didn't mean it being a dick. He was being almost, like, big brotherly. Yeah, Dime, know, like, Dime was known for being he, he, super a, nice. There's a, there a friendly way about it. Yeah. That's, yeah. So, and, and he was like, you know, you can do that. Where he's like, you got to stay on top of the string, man. You got to, you can't let the pick uh, leave the string. That's the trick to playing really fast. And I was like, oh, wow. And he actually, like, opened my eyes to something and, and showed me something. Yeah. And was in that same show, so here I am playing the Galaxy Club where my remains used to always play all my same friends out there. I remember my cousin Jimmy was there and the, the people get pushed. Like, you know, like people were like, who, who is that pushing us away? Like, hey man, quit pushing. And I see this drink up in the air that's moving towards the stage that somebody's carrying. And I don't, like, well, what, what sort of takes my attention off the guitar is that the drink did not spill at all. And I was like, wow, whoever this is, is not spilling. Is it a bartender or a waitress or somebody bringing the, this drink over? That's really impressive. And I see this dime bag, and he pushes his way, pushes everybody out of the way, comes up front and starts giving the horns, and he's banging his head. And he's right next to my cousin Jimmy. And Jimmy just looks over like, who's, over, who's pushing out of the way? And then he looks over and goes, oh, my God, it's dime bag. And he's like, all right. And he pulls this like, blunt out of his pocket and he lights it and then they're all smoking and everybody's having the, the you know like a, a great time and that was such a cool moment you know especially now and so 
you know, fast forward to getting ready. It was before the Speaking Sweet tour, and me and Madonna are like, you know, working on guitar stuff. And I said, all right, for this, you know, Mel was really focused on the right hand, and I had showed her all this stuff. I, I taught her all this, uh-huh. like, okay, you gotta, you know, keep your, keep, don't let the pick leave the string. Like when you're playing faster, your pick doesn't need to be. You know, a lot of people, you see everybody's hands go up and down, but what you're doing is you're just giving yourself more work to bring your hand back to the string. So you just barely move the pick, almost like if you're scratching off like a, a lottery ticket or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of the analogy. So I showed her that. Next day, she comes in with a bottle of wine. She sits it down with two glasses. She puts her last paw. She goes, check this out. She goes, like, like, plays it really fast. I'm like, oh my god, that's so much better. She's like, yep. You got to keep that. You got to stay on top of the string. And I was like, (laughs) that's awesome. I just taught her something that Dimebag taught me. You know, yeah, five five years before at a prong show. I was like, okay, now I got to, I got to show you a Pantera song. And so I'm thinking like. What would be, what would be something I could show her? And at the, so we had gotten a new musical direct, director, Kevin Anderson, was in the band then. Um, it was she, she got a whole new band, but but I was still there. And one of Kevin's ideas, so well, this is something that's really interesting because Kevin comes from the world of like all the boy bands. Like his first gig he ever got was. He was the musical director for the new Kids on the Block, oh boy. This new band that was coming out. <laughs> so imagine all the, you know, imagine what that was like in 1986 being into the new Kids on the Block. Yeah, yeah, like the, um, like the Beatles almost. Probably. And uh, his dad uh, is tunes from, well, the, he's a saxophone player. And Eddie and the Cruisers. Oh, nice. He was a saxophone player for the Beaver Brown Band. And so somehow from that connection, the new kids on the block were coming out and then they, they needed a musical director. So he, he, he it's like, you know, he, he wound up doing that. So from that, he wound up being with the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and it's Justin Timberlake. All, all of the boy band kind of stuff. Yeah. He's like the go-to guy. For whatever reason, I mean, he's amazing. But um, so he had this idea of doing hung up with her playing like a dis- like a um, I'll say heavy, but like distorted guitar, mm-hmm. you know, like a rock guitar, call it that. And the way that we were tuned for that, it was kind of perfect for a way that I could show her how to play a new level. Which isn't the way that Dimebag played it, but it's, it's the same notes still, so you can still play it. It's called drop tuning for guitar players. Yeah. Um, which is not the way that a new level actually is, but you can still play the same notes. Um, so I showed her that riff because it just moves up one fret at a time, so it's, it's kind of easy to remember that one. So I just showed her that as just like an exercise. And then in rehearsals, as we're playing hung up when it ends she would just start playing that riff and then the, the rest of the band didn't know they don't know anything about Pantera <laughs> and so they would just play the riff with her and so Brian Frazier Moore the drummer is just doing his own thing and Brian Frazier Moore comes from the 
the, the there's a whole different world of drummers in Philadelphia from all the from the churches. And I think so it's a completely different style of drumming. Mm-hmm. And it's like those I mean you see those like crazy uh church drummers that are just phenomenal players. And he he's like the top guy of all those guys. So uh we would just keep playing that riff and then you think like, okay, well that was cool, but then the next day she would do it again, next day she would do it again, next day she would do it again. Then all of a sudden at rehearsal everybody starts showing up at that part of the set. Really? Like the tour manager just comes in with, with a clipboard and you know, someone comes in and fills the refrigerator with water. <laughs> and the manager just happens to come in. Yeah. And all people just started coming in because it was getting around like, hey, did you hear that? You know, she's playing part of a Pantera song. And I thought that, like, um, yeah, so it stayed in the set. And so I thought that, like, oh my God, these guys are going to hate me. Like, the Pantera guys are going to fucking hate me for having. Madonna play one of their songs. And I remember, you know, again, like years after that, meeting Phil and Tell for the first time, and Rita had told him, like, hey, he, you know, this is the guy that, um, that, you know, got Madonna to play a new level. And he stands up, and he walks up to me. I thought he was going to punch me. <laughs> you never know and with he, Phil. Like, gives me, he gives me the biggest hug. He's like, man, I can't even put into words like whatever you know what it means that you got Madonna to play one of our songs so hell yeah it wound up being really cool yeah well I mean I think we've heard or at least I've heard the stories in the last couple years that metal guys love Madonna too because the guys from Slayer I think came to one of the shows with their wives if they don't love Madonna Gary, Gary Holt is the biggest Madonna fan of them all that's cool hell yeah so Madonna yeah and Charlie and Scott and from all the entire guys yeah much respect. Absolutely. That's cool. But, you know, it's probably how I'm, I'm too close to it. It could be, it's kind of like how if, you know, you think of Michael Jackson and Prince and David Bowie and Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you like all that, all that stuff. And as time goes on, there's other things that I look at that are, you know, that are not so bad also, <laughs> I guess. Right. No, it's cool. I think it's just having that respect for what an artist can do and a musician can do and, it's really cool. Um, so we're, we're at about an hour. I want to touch on a couple more things real quick before I let you go. Um, okay. So you've got to play with some some of the, the legends of rock and roll and metal. You've got to meet some of the your idols. Uh, you've become friends with the guys from Slayer, the guys from Anthrax. You did the Spinal Tap reunion with the guys from Metallica and, and what seemed like a, an infinite number of other musicians. Um, you know, what is the single coolest thing that you've got a chance to do. Is there something that stands if I had out? To pick one, it would be Spinal Tap. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That because go ahead. Spinal. It was, it was live Earth. It was at Wembley Stadium. Um. It was one of those shows that gets you know broadcast to the whole planet. Mm-hmm. And um, Spinal Tap had said, if there's anybody. They sent out a memo, like anybody who plays bass in any any of the bands, we want to invite you to come join us on stage. We're going to do Big Bottom. We want to get as many bass players as we can. And so um, everybody in Madonna's band at the time knew how to play bass. And 
so we all were like, hey, we'll, we'll all do it. <laughs> and so we were all going to do it. We, we all, you know, we all were going to, and that's a movie that we always referenced all the time. We yeah. watched it all the time on the bus. We watched it backstage. And it's, it's your life, really, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On tour. Well, I think the announcer even said something like Monty Pitt from Madonna, so and so from Madonna, so and so from Monty, everybody from Madonna, or something. He he referenced it, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not going to say what he said, but you okay, can look it up for yourself. Yeah, it's it's on YouTube. And so we we went. Um, what was what was one of the amazing things about that was we go to their dressing room and they were in character. <laughs> And which was really funny. Like it wasn't Christopher Guest and Michael McKeon. It was David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tuff, you know, right. and they, they all were working like in character talking to us. And, um, <laughs> um, so then we're, we're getting ready to play Metallica played before them. We're on the side of the stage. And then Robert Trujillo comes up. He came up to me because I had, well I had my bass on and I probably at the time looked like the person maybe that he would get along with more than anybody else. Okay. And he goes, "Hey, how, how does the song go?" And I'm like, "Are you serious? You don't know?" And so I was showing it to him, and he wrote he wrote it down on his arm, and he's like, "Okay, thanks, man. Cool." Like, and he didn't just leave. And we were like, okay, well, that was cool. Because I had been playing their songs with them on the side of the stage. Because I had a, had, a, had a bass on. And like while they were playing, I was just playing just to be playing. Like, oh, cool, I'm playing with, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like Metallica's there on the stage and you're on the side of the stage and you've got your guitar on and you're playing the songs with them. So just a cool thing. So then I see Robert showing um, Kirk how to play Big Bottom, and then James <laughs> is kind of looking over their shoulder. Well, it was off a of fret. And I'm thinking, wait, are we going to go out there, and what if Metallica plays the wrong notes? You know, but I showed Robert how to play this, so should I say something? Yeah, I yeah. Up, I go, hey, sorry to interrupt, but it's actually it's on the fifth fret, not the fourth fret, or whatever it was. And then they're like, oh, cool, you know, thanks. And then Stuart who was in Madonna's band, he was like, you realize you just taught Metallica how to play a song? <laughs> uh, I, did, I didn't know so, that. that. I didn't know that part of the story. That's great. So then uh, it's me sitting there, I'm standing there next to James, and we're going out on stage at Wembley Stadium, and small talk, so I like that. So we walk out, and I was going to go all the way across the stage for whatever reason, which I'm sure they would have done something stupid and they would have like made a joke at me. <laughs> and but instead I was like, what, what am I doing? And I turned around and I just I just went straight for the amp and the guitar cable, I plug in, I turn around, I look at the crowd and James is to my left and Kurt's to my right. And I'm thinking like, did I am I supposed to be here? <laughs> like did I just like <laughs> go in between them? And they're like, I said, Do you want me to move? And they're like, No, they're good. We we wanna we'll watch you um well, watch your hands because you know the song. So I'm like, oh, okay. So then that that was it. That's how we uh, that was that moment. Oh, and when we met with Smile Tap, like in their dressing room before, they wanted everybody to do a solo, but me and Robert were the only ones who actually did a solo. But I asked them. I said, can I do Nigel's 
solo, like from the movie. Mm-hmm. Like his, he goes, oh, what, the, the stupid solo? I go, yeah. He goes, oh, yeah, I'm not doing that, whatever. <laughs> so that's, that's why they, but see, they had all the amps set so bad that you couldn't hear us. Yeah. And so it was like, afterwards, I was like, oh, yeah, but you couldn't, you know, the amps were all like, you couldn't hear any of us. I go, yeah, we had a spinal tap moment. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> so, so great. They did all that on purpose. I love and then it. As we, we when it was time for you know Madonna played, um, I think we were last or maybe next to the last, and uh, we, you know, like like everybody kind of gets together for a group huddle, and then me and Marcus and Steve we, we would go back to the dressing room and drink a quick shot before we go on stage. So we do that. So we have to go a little bit of a walk to get back to the dressing. room. And then when we left, they had already started tearing down everything backstage, and we didn't know where to go. But then Michael McKeon and um, Harry Scherer were back there. They were out of their costume. They were just normal. And, mm-hmm. and um, we couldn't find our way to the stage because all <laughs> the signs were down and everything. Oh, my God. And they're like, oh, hey, guys, you, you know, great job. You guys been playing with you. Like, you know, you know, have a good night. I'm like, yeah, 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 have a good night. How do we get to the stage? They're like, oh, okay, all right, guys. Yeah, we've heard that one before. We're like, no, 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 seriously, how do we get to the stage? Like, they've torn everything down. They're like, okay, yeah, all right, okay, good one, guys. <laughs> we're like, no, oh, my God, they think that we're saying, like, some sort of spinal tap line. To no, yeah, we're yeah. serious. Like, we're going on stage right now, but we don't know how to get there. And we went back to the stage. We went back to our dressing room to drink a shot. <laughs> so that we had, uh, you know, a spinal tap moment with spinal tap. That's awesome, man. Well, I, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions, and then we're going to wrap this thing up. Um, so you have a number of solo albums. Probably anybody, obviously anybody that's a fan of yours has probably checked them out. But um, The Deepest Dark, Pain, Love, and Destiny, Power of Three, Inverted Grass of Balance, Better or Worse, Between the Space. Um all fantastic albums, all kind of expanding, spanning over the last 20 years of your growth and your, your life. Um, but talk about not only recording your own, own albums, but actually getting to be a part of Metal Blades with Brian Slagle, um, somebody, again, that you you know read about as a kid, looked up to the, the bands that he signed and his, his label. Yeah, well, um, I had, you know, I'd, I'd made a couple albums on my own. Mm-hmm. And I was going to make, uh, I've become, you know, you know here, here's another long, you know, story that I'll just shorten that, you know, I made friends with Fleming Rasmussen. Yep. And I was going who to. Produ- who produced about, Ride the Lightning, correct? That's what he's, I mean, most famous for. Right, yeah, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets and Injustice for All. Okay. And so we had talked about, like, hey, well, it'd be cool. We should work together on something. And I thought, at the time, like, well, what if I got back with Prong and he did a Prong album, which would be really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I gave him, so then we, we, we met up again, like another time I was over in Europe. And I said, what do I, what do I you know, here, here's here's all these songs that I'm writing. Here's my demos. What, what do you want to record? What do you think is good from all this? And he's like, I, I want to do your heavy stuff. He goes, I like all the other stuff, but this heavy stuff's what you're really good at. And he goes, that's what we need to do, and that's what you need to showcase as a guitar player. That's what you need to kind of show off. And so then I went to Copenhagen, and we recorded the Power of Three album. 
And that was all that was all done on the same equipment that Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets were done on. And he he says that it's even a, a tape that he didn't use on Master of Puppets. And I was like, oh yeah, 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 whatever. You're just trying to get me pumped up. He goes, well, no, because we did Injustice for All in L.A. So I did everything there. Because after Master of Puppets, he didn't do the Black album, and then he just kind of like kind of retired for a while. Yeah. So this was him getting Sweet Silence Studios started up again when he did the Power Three. So. <clears throat> Um, when, when I, I, I got back to, to LA after doing that album and Brian Slagle and I just happened to live near each other and we got together for dinner and I'm like, Hey, let me play you something. You know, I just finished this with, with, uh, with Fleming and I said, what, you know, what, what should I do with this? I don't want to have to put this on out on my own. There's got to be somebody who would get behind this. And he's like, I'll take it. Hmm. I'm like what? <laughs> so then that's what got me signed to Metal Boy. Well, yeah, and that's, again, like, I mean, I would think it, it's sort of like a dream come true. I mean, right? I mean, you heard about Metal Blades for years. You Brian's a legend in the business, and once again, you become friends with this guy, and, and you know, he he helps you out in your career. Yes, absolutely. And then from there, got me, um, you know, management, and then the, Jay Rustin did Inverted Graphs of Mallet. And we were going to get, like, different people to play on every song. Mm-hmm. But then Richard Christie, I like what Richard, Richard Christie had done. And I said, well, can Richard just do the whole album? And so we did that. We were going to do the same thing with bass players. And that was kind of the thing in that year. Like, you know, you had Metal Allegiance came out, which, you know, you had Allies, Mike Portnoy, and... Um, you know, you had different people playing on different tracks and that sort of thing. That that was the original sort of idea for that album. Okay. But nothing else, nothing else worked out with anyone else for scheduling. But Billy Sheehan worked out to where we got Billy on some songs. But then I was like, well, you know, I'll just have to finish this for a bass for everything else. So that was that album. And then beyond there, I didn't know I was thinking like, okay, well, what do we do? You know, I've got, People who like acoustic stuff, there's people who like the heavy stuff. How do you, you don't want to alienate either side, but mm-hmm. also it can be confusing to people who like the heavy stuff if I do acoustic stuff. So, um, so then, um, so I did just, I told Brian, I was like, well, what if I did two albums? And he's like, you could do that. I said, yeah. He's like, well, can you do it yourself? And I'm like, yeah. So that's how that uh, those albums turned out. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Well, it's a, it's a different it's a different decade. Sure, so I feel like music is going to be different now. Um, I don't see myself putting out another like album. Okay, but then again, maybe I will. My my plan is to do. I'd like to do singles. Yeah, that I'd like to just you know I'd like to just do one song. And make that as good as it can possibly be. Okay. Yeah. I Not, mean, you know, I, I did between the space and better or worse in my garage, and I <laughs> wanted it to kind of be my sort of um, misfits out sounding album or Garage Days from Metallica, like yeah. that sort of. That's what I wanted it to be, but it wound up sounding better, but also not sounding like it was done in the professional studio. Yeah. So it, that's my sort of Garage Days moment, you know, and. 
Um, but next, I want everything to be kind of like the most, like the, the greatest recording you've ever heard, like each song. So what? just do one song and do a video for it. And then when, when that's done, pull, pull all your resources together and do another song. And yeah. then, you know, just to kind of keep going. And then when it's all done, then put out an album. You know, release it as an album and have something else kind of significant to go along with it. Gotcha. Yeah, the, the business, uh, the music industry, really, if you want to even call it the music industry anymore, has significantly changed. And, you know, downloads and, you know, uh, YouTube and all that has absolutely changed the game, it seems like. Well, it's fun. I mean, you, you can hear music more. That It's easier to hear music than ever. Yeah. Well, but, and, you don't, but albums you aren't selling like they money, used to. But then again, it's not true, but, you know, people didn't get paid as you always hear about people. You always hear about all these old bands saying they never see a dime from any of their albums. Also, right? Yeah, it's crazy, but and, um, you know, when you're working as a as a musician or as an artist, it's not just like okay, so I went on tour opening for Sebastian Bach. Yep, and you, you make your money that you make every night. That barely pays for gas. Because gas is so expensive going from one city to another. And then you have to sell your your shirts and your CDs, but also you're the opening band. So people are mainly showing up to see Sebastian. So mm-hmm. you don't play in front of the same amount of people Sebastian's playing in front of. It's the people who get there kind of early. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's you know, not so easy. So people who are just going when Sebastian's starting, they don't know who the opening band is. And they, you know, so you're, they don't, they, they have no idea what you just played or what you sound like or anything like that. So it doesn't mean you're going to sell them a shirt or a CD. Right. And that's really, you, know, you hear people say, like, basically touring is you become a traveling shirt salesman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The merch is where it's at. That's what, that's, what, that's what you're doing. And then you have to pay everybody else. Right. And then, you know, what about, you know, getting hotels or a, just a, a, even like a shower room. It's almost in, impossible. Yeah, it's sad, man. It's unfortunate because I love going to shows. To keep going because all the bands that we grew up listening to had so much. You know, they they went through their own problems and they went through their own issues. Right. That you could always equal it out or balance it out. Like, you know, if you toured in nineteen eighty two. The way you called home was through a payphone. <laughs> True, yeah, yeah. And now you can text each other. So, or FaceTime. Or you go on FaceTime. Yeah. Or Skype or something. And so there, there's there's uh, positives and negatives to to both ways of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, But then also, so when I, I went on tour with Tony McAlpine, and what we did is, you know, we bought on to the, the bus. So you, you rent. So Tony will pay for the bus, and then we'll rent bunks. Mm, okay. So, so then you you don't have to pay for gas, and you have a and, you, and then you can sleep. I don't have to drive after a show. That's yeah. That's and that's so, a lot yeah, better. Those, those sort of things. So you just kind of keep building that up. Um, but it's really hard for a, a new band. To, like looking at uh, looking at Rush. You know, they didn't. They you know they. Put out five albums before they had something that was like a huge hit. Prince, true. 1999 was his fifth album. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I I discovered him on Purple Rain and had no idea at the time that he had had albums before that. Yeah, so I look at it as I haven't even started making those recordings yet for me. If you compare it to those kind of artists, sure, that stick around. Well, I think your time's coming, Monty. Uh, I know you have a lot of fans, and I hope they uh, they're listening to this. But I hope some of the people that uh, listen to the motocross podcast that I do check this out and and. You know, oh, buy, it'd be great for that. Yeah, and buy your albums. Um, I, I've I've used a lot of your songs to open some of our shows because I love your music. I, I I've told you this on the last episode. I'm so proud of you to think that my buddy from right down the road, you know, went from you know opening for Pissed On to uh, playing with Madonna, Danzig, Ministry, Prong, <laughs> Miley Cyrus for a song or two, um, Adam Lambert before he was Adam Lambert. Spinal Tap tribute, all the things you've got to do and accomplish in the last 20 years. Uh, man, I don't think anybody deserves it more than you. I don't think anybody um, anybody that doesn't know you, you, you have not changed. You're the same humble guy you always were. Um, you care about your friends and your family, and, and I love you, brother. Love you, too, man. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, hey, and one last thing you got to do that I didn't mention is you also got to play in the Kiss Arena Cross Band Arena Cross. Right. I'm thinking of Supercross, but yeah. Kiss Arena yeah. Football League band with your, which Kiss was your all time favorite band. Um, you got to, you know, talk to Gene Simmons. Another cool thing huh. in your career. How rad. Yeah, the LA Kiss. Yes. LA football team before, you know, what LA has now. And it was an arena football team, and they had, uh, at the touchdown line, there was a stage. And so they always had, you know, we, we played. It was me and Matt Starr. Matt Starr is Ace Frehley's drummer, and uh, he's actually played for Paul, and he's played for Gene. Like, he's played for all of them. Nice. Um, and uh, let's see, uh, Bruce Kulik played with us one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Sean McNabb play bass, who's played for a bunch of people, amazing bass player. Um, and so that was cool. Uh, Patrick from, um, um, I can't remember anybody's band now. <laughs> right. I'm friends with Patrick on Facebook because of that, but I don't even remember. What's I don't, the name of his band? I don't what remember either. Buttershot. Yes, there I it is. Know? Yep. What's happening to me? I can't remember. We're old. We're getting old, Monty. We're getting old, bro. I'm not. Okay. Um, well, I am. Maybe you are. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, the, w- one really cool thing with that was one time we were playing it afterwards the fans would come out on the field and see all the football players and all that and gene and paul would always be there on the stage next to us kind of watching the game uh-huh and uh we were, we were doing god of thunder and we were like killing it too like, <laughs> like we were like really nailing the song yeah yeah, you know, like if it was the end of the night and who cares kind of thing. And I see all these people move, and Gene is on the 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 field signing autographs for all the fans, and then he's turning and he's just watching it. And I'm playing God of Thunder. I'm on the stage and I'm looking down. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> I didn't know that Gene was still here. I figured he left. Yeah, and he's watching us. And then afterwards, we're both leaving at the same time. I'm going down one hall. He's going down another hall. We meet up together. He's like, you guys are really good. He goes, when I grow up one day, I want to be just like you. I said, you know, 
<laughs> so, you know, I said the same thing when I was a kid about you. That's... Said, Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a great story well my you know, really really cool uh really cool bosses to have yeah yeah i can imagine well again uh i'm so proud of you and i appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh do this interview and i'm going to get this thing wrapped up and we'll get it up for everybody to listen to all right thanks so much all right, Monty. Are, thanks. Are me, are nope. me, you, Chris, and Kevin gonna do one? Yeah, we're gonna. I'm gonna try to get that scheduled. Um, here, let's. All right, hey, I'm gonna say bye to everybody. I appreciate it if you guys are listening, um, and let me know what you think of this thing and share it with everybody. All right, we're out of here. Yeah.